Welcome to season six of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope for your marriage and home. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm a military spouse, clinician, and advocate. And I'm bringing topics that I hear from the service community and counseling room to the podcast. This season, we're talking about what it means to be strong in body, mind, and spirit. And I'm giving you the challenge of rising above your circumstances to become the best version of you. So grab a cup of coffee or head out for that run. We have a lot to talk about. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. We are in the middle of the special edition Afghanistan series, um, where we have done, I think, a total of four episodes so far. Um, We're going to be wrapping it up very soon. But um, I said in the very beginning, um, I think it was on a Facebook Live, actually, we talked about um, having Matt um, come on to share his perspective Um, As a service member who has been to Afghanistan, deployed to Afghanistan, um, and and I know some of you have been anxious to hear from him, a lot has happened since everything has kind of um, evolved and and since it started and evolved. And so it actually could be an even better time to to have this conversation. But... um, just so just as a quick reminder, the whole point of this series is to help you process um, some of the biggest questions that might come up in any one of us um, seeing the withdrawal of Afghanistan and what that might mean for you, for your family, for um, deployments that you've been on or or any anything else. Honestly, I'm seeing people affected by it, even if they weren't deployed to Afghanistan. I've seen families um, reactive to it as well. So um, what I have tried to do during this podcast series is to um, figure out what are those tough questions that we're all asking, um, but more so do these interviews and these episodes um, with like active processing. And so what I mean by that is I've not given Matt a list of questions. We've not, I mean, we've talked about it, processed it as a couple but I really just wanted to um, let him process what he's been thinking out loud and us just talk about it with the, with the goal that it might help some of you, some of you listening out there with maybe some of your own processing that you might want or need to do. So we haven't really like scripted exactly what you're going to talk about. Um, So hopefully, you know, this will be just something that will help you guys um, process as we go. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi. You're like the most popular guest. Who knows how many episodes you've been on now? Uh, well, I, I purposefully stay away from being on the podcast no. so that I become more popular. Oh, is that what it is? Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're so, like hogging the mic, I think, over here. So um, first off, let me apologize. I will be clearing my throat because I had cheese on my pizza and I normally don't do dairy. <laughs> so there you go. Um, okay, so... We have um, just come off of doing the deployment series. Um, you have you have been on quite a bit, and so I think everybody's familiar with you. If you've read Sacred Spaces, I have to give my caveat. What's your caveat? All the views oh. that are expressed during this podcast are those of this person or of me, and they are not of the Department of Defense, the Department of the Army, or anybody that I work for. I'm not speaking for them, and uh, but also I'm not going to speak about anything about policy or anything controversial. This will all be stuff from my own experience and my service as um, a caregiver 
for service members and families. There you go. And I think that's wise. And I think that's, I know that's what I wanted for this um, whole series is to not get into places of debate, not getting into places of who's right, who's wrong, that sort of thing. This is really about processing, right? processing feelings and thoughts and and that sort of thing, not um, divisive conversations. Mm -hmm. So, um, so a lot, a lot has happened. A lot has happened Mm -hmm. since the first kind of knowledge of Afghanistan um, um, the withdrawal of the troops in Afghanistan. Since it became abundantly clear that we were going to end the longest war. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so I, I have to say, I think other spouses or family members might feel this way too. Like I even feel not nervous to have this conversation with you, but, um, I, th- I think it's coming from a place of, I think seeing the withdrawal of Afghanistan. And I know when I went on that trip overseas, I realized just how little I knew. Like I, I remember going on that trip and realizing like, I, I didn't, I don't think I ever, and I'm kind of ashamed of this, but I don't, other than where do I send a care package to you when you're in Afghanistan? I don't know if I had studied the map, understood the map, understood all of the mm-hmm. key players involved. Like, I think maybe like a lot of other spouses, I kind of separated myself from knowing too much about it. And so when I once went there, I was like, wow, I have really missed Mark. Like I should have understood more. Mm -hmm. I should have um, understood the map better. I should have like all of that. And so I think even talking to you now, I feel a little nervous because, you know, trying to talk about what's happening over there. You're hoping I don't correct any terminology. I'm actually wanting you to, because I think that there's, I think there's a lot of people and family members, spouses that are watching what's happened and are kind of waking up to, you know, what, what things were really going on and what was happening there and the pros and cons of being there. And just, and I think out of all that angst, that's where some of those opinions and, and kind of feelings are coming from. So I feel a little nervous to mm-hmm. like try to talk through it, but I actually want you to correct me or educate me or if if there's something. So the first thing I would say is I don't like the term withdrawing because it sounds like retreating. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We left, we, we negotiated with the Taliban and um, uh, a, a no later date, no later than date, uh, which we would uh, leave. We would take all of our troops. And I I know other places may call it withdrawing, but um, it, it sounds defeatist. Mm-hmm. And I think I believe that for the people that I went over there with, we we did the job that we were asked to do and we did it well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So um, no, I appreciate that because I've yeah. been using withdrawal this whole time. Well, know? no, I mean, I, I mean, that's just like personal preference. I mean, other people may say it's a withdrawal, but I mean, anywhere in the military, I mean, golly, you start talking doctrine and then people are going to like. Uh, it could be a five-hour conversation where, like, well, did we withdraw? Did we leave? Did we, what exactly did we do? And you're like, um, yeah, that's why doctrine is like uh, it's a living, breathing thing because people are always like, you know, they always go, words mean things, and they're like, like, like that's the big quote. You know, people are like, words mean things, and you're like, yes, I know, we just don't mean the same thing. Well, I think that brings up a really good point as couples and families try to talk this through Mm -hmm. is that there can be triggering words for both a service member and for the spouse, you know, and so much grace and much explanation. And you even saying, well, that's my personal way of looking at it. Um, Why is that important to you? 
to say, I mean, I, I think I know, but like, can you expand on why it's important to you to change that word? Um, because it, it feels like uh, more of an, an active voice kind of choice. Um, it feels more, um, I don't want to say maybe for me, speaking for me, I don't want to ever feel or say like there was a retreat and we just beat feet and got out of there and saved our own skin. Um, and that's, it's not how I've been raised in the military. It's not how I feel or what I think. And, um, and so maybe that's just the way that I'm choosing to conceptualize it. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we ended the war. Mm-hmm. We ended the war that we went out there to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the way things rolled out did not roll out the way anybody, the way that most people expected, <clears throat> nor that uh, anybody would want. But again, this isn't the end of Afghanistan story. I have to remind myself as much as people have said this may be, quote, our Vietnam. Vietnam's a place that I could take my kids. I could fly there today mm-hmm. and I could visit Vietnam. And um, there's a lot of hope in the world. And uh, I have a great hope for Afghanistan and the people of Afghanistan that right choices are made in the coming years um, that, that support human rights and that support people as humans with dignity and respect. And, um, you know, I, I'm, it's not up to me to, to say who will or won't do that, but that's my hope and my prayer mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. So you spent two deployments in Afghanistan. One was a year, Mm -hmm. right? And the second one was it, I I always get confused because it was supposed to be a certain length. And I think you came home early four months. The second one was supposed to be nine months. Mm -hmm. But um, so right right in October, right before we left, we left in November. And the second one in October, that's when um, uh, Clint called me and asked if I could do the invocation at his medal of honor ceremony from the first deployment from the first deployment um went into my brigade commander and was like hey could i tdy back from afghanistan to do the medal of honor ceremony invocation pretty please with sugar on top Mm -hmm. because it's like a once in a lifetime thing Mm -hmm. and uh he kind of dithered in that moment which um was a huge wounding to me Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah and that's not healed well um but then got into got into country and then you know i got you know i found out in the news and talked to clint that it was going to be february 11th and they finally gave me the release from theater and that was the hard part of that was it was in tarrant which is which is where um the it's it's where the the northern alliance then pushed on down into kandahar and um it was kind of an epicenter of where things started, you know, uh, the whole war kind of kicked off. Right. And, um, and we were withdrawn, not withdrawn. We were leaving. Like we were starting to pull everything back. Right. Um, like we're sending home containers at that point in time, the Australians were our, our high con, we we're the deputy. And, um, <clears throat> so we, uh, you know, we're sending stuff home and it was really kind of surreal to have been in Afghanistan in 2009 with a surge, and then here in 2000, into 2012, into 2013, like we're starting to send containers home. Like we're breaking things down. It's like, oh, like, huh, like this may be over, you know? Um, we were relying on some, some 
reliable local warlords to keep the peace. And, uh, and things seem to be going very well, at least in the north part of RC South. RC South, especially uh, in the Panjway, um, was still pretty kinetic uh, at that time. And, um, but, you know, all I wanted to do was go home and do that ceremony. But um, we had another chaplain that had left a unit. And, uh, and so we actually had enough religious support coverage where I was uh, a second time at multinational base Terran Cal, um, that it made more sense for me to be at home, to be able to provide that coverage, to go do the ceremony and then come home. And so that's, that's kind of why it went from being a nine month to a three monther. So, so I have a question about that. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I forgot to cover oh. is um, I was hoping that you were actually going to be the first interview of this series. And here we're on like the fifth. Yeah. And so I've had a few people reach out and say, you know, is Matt coming on? Yeah. You know, like what's going on with that? And so do you want to just maybe briefly share like what that delay has been? Um, you know, we've been busy. <laughs> Odd fact about me is I, I think uh, and you know, this is that. I've always been rather an impetuous person, um, strategic thinking usually, but not strategic as far as like my ability to, to try and, um, be patient with my words or my actions. Um, the journaling that we did during this last appointment really helped me to be able to slow down. I think an aspect of that was I did not want to, um, I wanted to see how things were going to be, you know, it's always kind of a, just wait, you know, and I know this bugs you about me. This is just like a marriage thing that oftentimes like, I'll be like, we need to do this, but not right now. Mm -hmm. Like wait. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the, like the, the, the best way I can explain it is, do you remember in the beginning of Lord of the Rings when Gandalf rides up and Frodo runs up there and he goes, you're late. <laughs> and Gandalf goes, a wizard is neither late nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he intends to. So you're a wizard. Um, well, maybe. <laughs> so, no, it's, um, there's been always just for me, I've always had this uncanny narrative that it's just, I don't know if things just happen at the right time. And I didn't feel like it was the right time. And so I didn't, I don't want to, you know, it's like the David Crowder song. I don't want to move, you know, um, and I don't think I should. You know, and sometimes you just feel like it's not yet. It's not yet. It's wait. Um, I, I respect the time that you needed to take. And um, and there's been a lot of feelings because there's been a lot of things that have happened. And there's been lots of transitions of, you know, thinking about things and um, new questions that have popped up, I think. And um, so going back to um, the fact that you had two deployments there when you were kind of going back over the second story again, it reminded me of how two totally different types of mm -hmm. um, deployments to and experiences in Afghanistan um, and, and two very different kinds of, of soul wounding yeah. in Afghanistan, whether it was because of Afghanistan or not, that's just where you were going like the, through it. The two times in Afghanistan, I had the absolute best commander and absolute worst commander I've ever had. And that was like, we're going to talk more in, in a little bit about mm -hmm. that best commander, you know, but yeah. um, that was to see you go through the first deployment, which rocked our world completely, rocked your world. Um, and to lose the number of people that we lost, um, you know, which that first one affected the second one. 
because of Clint Romache's Medal of Honor that you came home from on that second one. Mm -hmm. And so it was um, part of your healing journey to need to come home to be a part of that. Like that Mm -hmm. was, um, we fought so hard to get you home for that. And it was um, necessary. And so. Thank you, General Randy George. Yeah, for helping that happen. Um, So that being said, with this end of this two-decade war, there's a lot of, for a lot of people, and this is my question for you, there's a lot of people that have a lot of stuff wrapped up in this country. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't spend a year and a half of my life in that country. I didn't um, live among people, the people or other people affected by that war daily. And so can, can we go back to when that withdrawal first started happening and things and seeing, seeing, um, the Taliban systematically take back over that country. Do you remember what your initial feelings were? What in 2012? No, I mean, a week and a half ago, or you can go back if you want to. Oh no. Um, I think the first thing that went through my head was, um, damn it. Okay. Why? Um, I wanted to see something better for the country. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to see, I like seeing people treated with dignity and respect. Um, and, uh, I don't know, it just happened so, happened quickly. And then, I mean, then the chaos ensued and then we were sending soldiers back in harm's way and it just, it it escalated um, uh, beyond what I think anybody was prepared for. And, and when things happen like that, you're naturally in a reactive spot. Nobody, especially military planners, do not like to be in a reactive spot. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to... I mean, it's the reason we use active tense whenever we do our writing, because we do stuff to people. We don't we don't use passive. People don't do stuff to us. And um, even though we are leaving now, all of a sudden now we're having to react to what people were doing. And um, it, uh, it the chaos, the the hurt, um, some of the images coming out of there, um, like the, the C-17 that's uh, taxiing down the runway and people are trying to cling to it. I mean, immediately I was just like, oh my gosh, like, what are those airmen and airwomen? What are they, like, what are they having to think and feel as they're, they're just doing their job and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's not one person in the military that um, is worth their salt that would ever want to inflict hurt or wound on someone without just cause. Um, It would never do it unduly. I mean, that would, um, like that that's their life that that's their life like that's their vocation you only get one life and their vocation is to free oppress people to um to stop evil uh to stop people from hurting other people to create space for justice to flourish um and um for rightness to grow and uh yeah it was painful you were pretty quiet. I would say you were pretty quiet. Yeah. At times you weren't quiet, but I would say for the most part you were pretty quiet. Well, it's it's bigger than words. 
Mm-hmm. So I didn't tell you this. This is um, today I was walking through the coic. What's a coic? Um, it's a, it's the it's like the operation center. I was going. I up, genuinely don't know it. Yeah, I was going. I was, <laughs> I was walking through the operation center at division, and I was heading upstairs for a meeting. Um, it was uh, which was a wonderful meeting about knowledge management. And uh, sounds learned, fascinating. It, you would love it. You can I, tell me some other time. It was a blast. <laughs> I mean, I actually really did enjoy it. I'm learning a lot about um how to take data and extrapolate that. So anyhow, blah, blah, blah. I, I walked, I walked past uh, the room that was down. We have a conference room downstairs and one upstairs. I walked past the conference room downstairs and I'm wearing a mask and I look in the conference room and I recognize somebody. And um, I was like, I don't think that's the guy that I think it is. So I pulled back and I pulled down my mask and I, uh, I pointed, I was like, I know that guy. And it was Tyler's platoon sergeant. Mm. And, um, Tyler's who we lost. Uh, Tyler was a friend of ours. Um, in the first deployment, um, we closed out his observation post and, um, <sighs> um, he was going to start playing guitar in the chapel. And uh, and the Saturday before the Sunday that he was going to, he died when he was just conducting a routine mission, uh, just driving down the road. And um, that was like the we had already lost Jay Breeze, and um, and that was tough because everybody loved Jay Breeze. Um, and uh, I just remember this platoon sergeant. A great man, loved him, loved him to death. In fact, one of the funniest stories I have, I, uh, um, he was a he was a headquarters platoon sergeant, and he was just frustrated because he's a combat guy, and just dealing with headquarters was not his big gig, and some of them were like crying to me, and so I just went straight to him and was like, hey, you know, um, and he came up to me today and he goes, I still tell that story of that conversation that we had, and. Uh, that was 13 years ago, 13 years ago, the first time I met him. And I still have great fond memories of him. And it was so wonderful to see him, especially today. But after I saw him, I walked off and, um, and I just wanted to hide and I wanted to cry. I just want, I didn't want to go to a meeting. I didn't want to go do anything. I just wanted to sit in the the um, sacred space of having seen somebody that I love very dearly, that is incredibly close to um, that I watched change and grow as a man. Um, and he is a uh, sergeant major now and uh, just a great, great person. Um, so anyhow. I got to see him today and I haven't seen him in 12 years. But it takes you back to, do you ever feel like you look back and you go, was any of that real? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for it to be a, when you're hooking and jabbing in two decade war. Oh, when you're hooking and jabbing in the present of operations currently in the military and you're like, you know, just coming back from Poland and responding to the Afghan evacuees that are happening right now and making sure that life is great for them uh, with everything that we have going on. You know, you pause and it takes you a second to be like, um, huh, 
Like I just saw a picture downstairs on the news of the Taliban rolling onto, I think, Bagram. And I was like, huh, that looks familiar. You know, you, you see people that you're like, I know you. And the last time that we were together, we were on very sacred ground doing very sacred things. And, um, you know, there was a, I remember writing a blog when I was in Afghanistan the second time. It was right after Tapper released his book. And um, it was a saying from someone else. And so it's not mine, but I think it said, for those that know, um, uh, what is it? For those that know, no explanation is required. For those that don't, no explanation will suffice. And I understand that everybody has different um, sacred spaces in their life. So it's not to say this is more sacred than that. It's just for in this one, for people that have um, been either in Iraq or Afghanistan or in Syria. I mean, during this huge global war on terror, people have been in some very horrible spots doing very horrible things and giving up real, you know, relationships that they'll never have again. And um, and I don't think you can ever really like imagine that it's real, feel that it's real, um, or forget it. It's like this little ghost in the in the machine. It's this little loop that if you if you go back into that space, into that headspace, when you're not in the regular everyday average, got to cut the grass, got to go to the grocery store. Da, da da da. If you pause long enough, and you're like, is that part of my life and you're like oh my gosh like that that's right there you know it's like a, a room in your house that you never change the decorations on you just don't go into but when you go in there you have to pause because there's so much that's that's there so yeah it does feel like was that my life no um what has that been like to have something sacred you know, I've been saying a lot lately, as I've been trying to process process it, that over the last 20 years, regardless of when you came in and what you did, if you're going to send, if you're going to go away or if you're going to send somebody that you love away to do any of those deployments, that we end up having to create our meaning in order to make it, um, in order to, to do the tough thing, thing mm -hmm. right? You know, so I've I've mentioned several times about how, like, during that first deployment, the boys and I tried to sponsor an Afghanistan or orphanage, right? Because the only way to make it easier to let you go for that long, especially, was to somehow create meaning for something. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a reason why, yeah. you know? And so we're helping people. So we're going to help daddy as he helps people. And that's the best I could do was sharing that with toddlers. And so... I've been thinking about how we, you know, have been creating that meaning for two decades um, in order to, we, we've been asking why for ourselves, why for a very long time and finding oh. answers to that why. And so what is it like for that to be sacred ground for you and to know it's sacred ground for other people and to have it be such a hot topic to have um, more I don't, we're not here to talk about the difference in opinions and stuff, right, but just right. to have so much like a wall of opinions and, you know, news cycles that are 24 seven. I mean, it's, I mean, what, what has that felt like? You know, it's a, um, I, I can answer that by starting with that, that phrase that we say hurt people, hurt people, mm -hmm. the noise that's out there, whether or not it's crying and lamenting 
or whether or not it's just anger and vitriol. Um, like if you didn't have any involvement in the war and you were just, for lack of a better term, you were in the stands, mm -hmm. if you didn't have skin in the game, like we say, if you didn't have skin in the game, whether or not that was you were there or you were attached to someone that was there or you were very close and you had skin in the game, if you didn't have skin in the game and you're just yelling and screaming, I don't, I don't really care. Like, just go scream, have fun, do what you want to do, add to the noise, be a talking head, whatever. If you were there and you had skin in the game um, within the global war on terror in GWAT, I understand that we all have stuff that's very unprocessed. Um, and it's going to express itself very differently. And I know that these are all humans that are struggling to attempt to give things meaning, mm -hmm. to create meaning. Um, uh, Victor Frankl said, life is never made unbearable by situation or circumstance, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. <sighs> what a what a huge thing. Like that literally just says that, you know, it's almost like Nietzsche says, he who has a, a why can bear up on, under almost any what, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, our attempts to give things meaning right now, to struggle with it, is to assign value to something that took something from us. What does that it's, mean? It's like taking ownership back. It's like, no, you don't get, you don't get to own that. I'm going to figure out how I give that thing meaning. By defining and scripting the meaning for you. I, I script the meaning. I'm going to script the meaning for myself. And I think that's the most powerful thing any of us can do right now is to not say what something did or didn't mean and not define that for somebody else. We have to define that for ourselves. And I'm not even telling people, well, what you have to go do is define. I don't even want to like go so far as to tell you what to do. I'm just saying, you know, what I think works well and works well for me is that on anything where I'm having a hard time struggling with it or dealing with it, the first thing I have to do is to give it meaning, you know, um, for instance, um, Going back to Tyler, there were a couple men that went up on the mountain with him that day. I, there was, I, his platoon did, platoon in particular. Uh, one of them, you know, afterwards kind of went off the rails. And another one um, just graduated med school. And um, an amazing man that I'm incredibly proud of, just honored to know, just an amazing man that I'm honored to know. And everything he did from that moment of Tyler's death on gave that moment back in history meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, it gave Tyler's death meaning. And that it wasn't just a sacrifice in vain. It wasn't just bad rules of engagement on a mountain. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a guy that's going to go forward and I think he's going to be a, a trauma doctor and he's going to step into the hell of people's lives and walk them out of it. Now, would he be that without this? I don't know. But I can I can assure you that he's going to be better at this because of that. Mm -hmm. And his, his determination to move forward in life and to be the best version of himself and just to literally be an amazing man in respect to that gives that moment meaning. Mm -hmm. He gets to re-script it every time he re-owns it, every time he does something. I don't know if this like fully, I don't know if that fully answers your question about meaning or purpose. Um, I just know that as people attempt to grasp for that, it, this is like, um, 
it's like birth pains. I don't know what that feels like, but I watched you and that looked like it sucked. <laughs> but um, people are going to express it differently. They're not all going to attempt to crawl off the bed. <laughs> but um, hopefully this is a birth of a different kind of nation, a better thing. Hopefully the end of this thing is the beginning of another chapter that leads to a better chapter that leads to a better chapter that leads to a better chapter. Um, but I know that in, um, in discomfort, people express it different ways, whether that is yelling and screaming, whether that is withdrawing, whether that's just moping and sadness. Um, I've watched, you know, the veteran community and, uh, and not just the veteran community. We had so many partners in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Um, we would, you know, OGAs, other government agencies, you know, um, Department of State, um, all kinds of people that were there as all these, you know, we're all working together as one team, one fight, everybody fulfilling a different role. And I just watched, especially on Twitter, just a massive group of people you know, military veterans and other government agencies and non-government agencies, NGOs, everybody pulling together to actually do whatever they could. Because in the midst of the, this is the beautiful thing about humanity is more often than not in the midst of terrible things. when people see that, they can't help but do something. Mm -hmm. They don't just sit back. Right. You know, and um, it's it's not the critic who counts. It's the person in the ring. It's the person in the arena marred by sweat and blood who, if he dared, dared, you know, greatly, greatly. I was going to say valiantly. I like valiant, valiant, great, whatever it is. But I mean, that's the key thing is what we saw in the last week gives me all the hope in the world for the people of our country and other countries that were like, even in the midst of this, like burning down, we're, st we're still going to do everything and we're still going to go and give it everything. And that, that's encouraging. That's encouraging to know that that goodness still exists in the heart of people that are willing to go above and beyond and to sacrifice sleep, to sacrifice comfort and convenience. And people like even in the Pineapple Express, they're like, you know what? No, going back in, mm -hmm. going back in, you know, one, worth make another Googling stand. if you don't know what the Pineapple Express is. Yeah. I mean, that, I can do, I can be a part of that all day long. Mm -hmm. This is, from my perspective, this is the, the first time war has felt like it's being played out in real time. <laughs> like, yes, we can find out things happen on the news, especially if it's at 630, maybe something pops up well, on social media. So but... what I think the difference is, is more what we're used to is that before we would say like large scale conventional kinetic activity occurs, and we go in and, and conduct land warfare, we're not aware, rightfully so, of the multiple agencies and entities that are shaping the battlefield before we get there. Um, and the way that, rightly so, those things are held closely tight um, by the right people who know what they're doing and do it well. And it's all part of the plan and the process. So that by the time that information actually gets to the American public, you know, 
they control, we control the narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge thing. We're going to control the narrative from the beginning. I remember, you can remember where you were when President Bush was like, on my order at such and such a time, this this had been going on. I remember where I was in, in um, Desert Storm, when Desert Storm kicked off. Um, I was in a car on the way to Beck Middle School, and I heard his father say, on my order, I have directed, and and goes through what he had said. And you're like, okay, all right, we are in control. Like, we are being told this information um, by the president. Mm -hmm. At this time, it was happening uh, in the context of we're watching it live on the news. You know, I think it's what you mean when you say that it was playing all out uh, in front of us in that um, we... We were learning of it just as soon as, soon as other people were learning of it. And that, yeah. that was like... That was hard. Yeah. I mean, even when, when uh, things happened in 2009, 2010, it did not move at the speed. Yeah. Because we didn't have, we didn't have smartphones. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have Twitter. The Twitterverse had not blown up yet. You know, people weren't sharing things on mm-hmm. Facebook with the speed. So the speed at which information moves now is lightning. And, uh, and at the same time, like people, uh, I would say the general public just isn't prepared for the speed at which warfare can move. Um, and to, to respond to it with the cool, level-headed calculation. Um, and so there's that, that rapidity. But then here's the other experience. Like, you know, you get to a point where you've been in the military longer than you, you know, long enough that... Like you look around all, all, all the time now and you see guys that are, that do not have a combat patch over here because we've been doing rotations and, um, and they haven't gone and done, you know, a combat deployment and you're not judging them. You're just, it, you become, it becomes like, huh, like, okay, like this is a whole new generation yeah, yeah. in a different frame of reference. So yeah. we had like, we had cadets and I was talking to them and I was like, you know, they were 21 been born i mean they they're we've been at war the entire time they've been yeah. alive and like they've been alive we've been at war longer than they've been alive yeah and yet the last several years for most of the conventional forces people haven't seen war i'm seeing staff sergeants that have not they do not have a combat patch and you're not like you're not judging them but you automatically make an assumption you're like your frame of reference and my frame of reference are different mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of us, we're war babies. Like you joined and you were deployed within a year. Yeah. I mean, I remember we had people that were fenced in that were like multiple time felons or maybe not felons, but, you know, had drug infractions. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, can't get rid of you because we don't have enough people and we're even bringing in more people. So come on, everybody, let's go. Yeah. And, um, And so you're you're trying to like. You're trying to help them understand Afghanistan because you know it, you experienced it on this end, mm-hmm. you know, back when there was hooking and jabbing or people help people understand Iraq because you were hooking and jabbing back then. And people don't have, it's like the two reservists that were there mm-hmm. on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, that's the ultimate specialist thing to do. But um, yeah, the other part, the hard part is, is I saw the ages yeah. of the Marines. And we've been, at, babies. we've been at war. I mean, they, they all were born the same year that we got attacked. 
and um probably they probably none of them have this is probably their first introduction into uh the violence that humanity can do to other people in the on the the scale at which it happened um and so when you're not like when you don't grow up in that culture of being at war, going to war, cycling through war, going back to war, going back to war, you train for war, you're going back to war and you live it and war, 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 war. And then that slows down and you're like, well, maybe that's kind of over a little bit. And then all of a sudden it happens. It's a shock that takes you almost back to there. And you're like, because <sighs> there was, there was this moment when we were with you're leaving <laughs> That, you know, I even wrote that first article that had mixed reviews, but I wrote that article of like, we're leaving. What does that mean? You know, and that was really the essence of the article is what, what does it mean for us to leave? You know, and how do we start processing what that means to leave? And, and so it's almost like we were kind of starting to have those conversations. And then there was like more going in and then like we, we lose these kids, you know, and it was like this massive roller coaster of like, how do I feel about us leaving? Wait a minute, we're going back in. Wait a minute, like people are dying. Like it was just a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm out. sure a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people that have done have done Iraq or Afghanistan previous to this and had experienced kinetic operations. I'm sure a lot of people were like, "Are we kicking back off? Yeah, was- are we are we about to are we about to have to go?" you know, thump some skulls. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were like, let's do it. Yeah. So it almost yeah. ramped everybody up ready to go again, yeah. only to go, nope, we're for Espe- sure. Leaving. Especially, I mean, especially after losing service members. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At that point in time. I Are you talking it, about the ones recently? Yeah. Yeah. Especially watching their lives be taken away from them. Uh, there were, I'm, I can guarantee you, everybody was ready to go thump skulls. One of the things that um, was huge for me during that trip, um, huge, um, that was also important in the book, was realizing and seeing just how much people loved their jobs, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I talk all the time about how families at home, when you're just, you know, welcoming your soldier home from the day and he's been training or he's out in the field and, you know, I'm using stereotypes, but there's females too. But like when we're welcoming our service member and our spouse home from the field or training, they're in that training mode, you know, and they may have all kinds of feelings, but there was something about going over there and seeing everybody actually do the thing Mm -hmm. that there was like a a totally different look in their eye. I mean, it was everywhere I went, every service member of every branch that I came across from the pilots of the planes to the crew to like everybody. Mm -hmm. And so much so that I was like, I started just like collecting examples of like, let's just see how many I can find that are like, love their job. Yes. And so when, you know, I remember this is in the book too, but I remember going to the general, I think there was a, maybe he was a Colonel, but anyways, I went up to him and I was like, this, this, he's like, how was your trip so far? And I'm like, this is what's standing out to me. Like, I don't think we get to see this spark in their eye. Yeah, because usually we come home and complain about the <laughs> being in the, the, Well, I mean, you complain about the like the shenanigans of Garrison. And you're just like, oh, right. And no. so, I don't think family members realize that. And no. um, he and he looked at me and he said, 
well, they volunteered to be here. Mm -hmm. And it like, I think that because so much of our life, you know, it doesn't feel like volunteering. It mm -hmm. feels like we're just being told what to do. We have no control and I have no control. And so you can forget that this is an all volunteer force. And that mm -hmm. like sh totally shifted a lot within me. And one of the female service members that we lost, her last picture mm -hmm. was her holding a baby and yeah. saying, I love my job. Mm -hmm. And so would you, can you, is it, can you share anything about, you know, there is a lot of feelings about going back there, but maybe if there's anybody out there that's, um, that just needs to understand what it means to love a job that you're willing to put yourself at risk for, mm -hmm. like maybe you can kind of paint a picture of what it's like to be in your skin deployed, I guess is maybe the question. So there's a moment where Colonel Scott Stevens down in 3rd Infantry Division, he put it on his Twitter page. So you got to tag him on this. Okay. He said, it's the hardest part of when you're leaving to deploy is to turn away from your family. But the best part of the deployment is to turn to face your other family. The people that you're deploying with, the people that you're like, all right, you know, we're all in. And as much as soldiers complain about like, um, or as much as service members complain about, you know, having to wake up at like O-Dark o 30 um, to go manifest for a flight that's, I don't know, 12, 15 hours later. And this is a convention forces. I'm sure special forces mm -hmm. just show up 30 minutes early without a shave. Um, <laughs> lucky dogs. Um, so there's something beautiful about like you get dropped off, you leave your car and you, you watch your family drive away and you all just kind of like gather around the bags and then it becomes this sacred tribe. Like that's the establishment of the tribe. It's like, and um, when you were saying it, when you were talking uh, this phrase and that mission gives meaning yeah. and that's what it is. It's, it's, it's not just, they love their job. People love having something to do well and they love their life. Like once you understand how finite your life is and once you're very in touch with your own mortality, which, um, you know, most of us as, as war babies very much are. And um, you want it to count. You want to leave a legacy. You want to make a difference in the world and you get addicted to it. You get addicted to changing lives and to seeing people turn. You know that as a counselor. Um, if you see somebody, if you hear somebody coughing, that's because our son has a cold um, <laughs> right in the room next door. Um, and, uh, and so that's what you see. You see this glow in their eyes of changing things for humanity and making things different for the world out there and for other people. And that becomes a very addicting, endorphin-giving feeling. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that, I know that's what you're seeing, but there's also this this sacred kind of joining with other people that that synergizes that. If you're out there by yourself, you kind of have to talk yourself into it. Mm -hmm. But if you're out there and you know that the team you're with has all set aside everything that's comfortable, everything that's convenient, and the family that they love dearly in order to go do that mission, and you know you're a part of that, oh, you play you play up another level. Because you realize it's not just about what you're getting out of it. It's about what you owe that team. Mm -hmm. It's about what you owe those people that you're with. Like you owe them your best. Mm -hmm. 
And so it makes it, it makes a huge difference. That's why you see that, that glow in people's eyes is like, you know, I can even say amongst the response of like, how are we going to like receive uh, Afghans into, into the U S people are just like, let's, all right, how are we going to do this? Let's do it. I mean, the, the guys that went along with the pineapple express, it was a, all right, let's do this. We know how to do it. We've done stuff like this before. Let's go do it and make a difference. Mm -hmm. And without getting paid. Yeah. Like, not because they're addicted to the adrenaline rush. Just to be good That's humans. It. Oh, to go out there and actually like shape the world and to know I can shape the world. I've been given the skills, the tools, and the talent to shape the world, which is why, you know, ever since my first unit, I mean, nine times out of 10, at the end of every meeting, everybody has to say, you know, you have to give your like call sign, you know, when it was the challengers. Uh, when it was 2-6 BSB, it was like, no challenge, you great, you know. Uh, when it was uh, 2nd Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division, it was send me, you know, Spartans, send me. Um, I still oftentimes, you know, still under my breath, I may say, you know, it's just the loot of the day, but in, under my breath, I'm like, forging destiny. I think that's absolutely beautiful. I'm To be forging destiny, to be re rewriting history to be not told what your destiny is going to be, but to go out there and actually shape it and do it. Um, that's a very empowering, strong thing. And it's the, the service members that I serve with, a lot of them are built of the same kind of stuff that even if you punch them and you knock them down, they're going to get back up and smile because they're ready to land the next hit. So I think that's why you see that. That's why, because that Marine could look in the eyes of that child mm -hmm. and know she's rewriting a narrative, mm -hmm. rescripting it. And what's it going to be like in 20 years when that child is given that picture? Mm. And, and that child then knows, maybe not 20 years, maybe 10, maybe 12 years, that child's going to look at that picture and they're going to go, that that woman gave up a her woman, life. A woman. That woman mm -hmm. came to my country and gave up her life, willingly loving her job. What's that little Afghan going to do? Mm -hmm. Everybody's given the choice. What are you going to do about it? You know, mm -hmm. just like going back to Tyler. This happened. And in my theology, God didn't want that to happen. Wasn't happy about it in the first place, but allowed it. And it's up to us what we do with it in, in order to give it meaning. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share the podcast with other service couples that may benefit from the show. If you'd like more information about me or Life Giver, head on over to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org.